If not, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, the first chapter in the book of Philippians. Brother Chris asked for my verses this morning, and I told him my verses, and he said, that's pretty short, and um, I think he got excited, um, but y'all pray, pray for me this morning. Later today, we'll be observing the Lord's Supper. And uh, as I was preparing my, my thoughts and my, my heart personally uh, for that and was uh, reading over the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul writes uh, to the church and, and he's writing to the Corinthians concerning the Lord's Supper. And the, the, the church at Corinth had just made a mess of the Lord's Supper. They had taken it and, and they were, were handling it all wrong. And Paul was writing to them to, to set those things in order and and as he was doing that, he, he was careful to note that if you were to take of the Lord's Supper, to take of the, of the table in an unworthily manner, that you were putting yourself at risk of, of judgment of the Lord. In fact, he told the Corinthian church that because some of them had taken of the Lord's Supper unworthily, that some of them had been very sick and made weak and some had even died. And that, that is the strong warning that Paul was issuing to the Corinthians. And for this reason then, he said, let everyone that comes to observe the Lord's table to examine himself. And so I was thinking about this, this idea of examination. And we see it in other places in Scripture too. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians again later on in 2 Corinthians in the 13th chapter, in the 5th verse, 5th verse, he said this, he said, to examine yourself to see whether or not you are truly in the faith. We are shown over and over again this principle of self-examination in the Scriptures. That we are to test ourselves to see whether or not we are saved and then to see whether or not we are living for the Lord. There is a test that we must put ourselves through that we might prove whether or not we truly are who we think we are. Now, when we think about this idea of an exam or, or of a test, I, I think in some respects this has kind of gotten watered down in society today. I, I'm not a, a social media user too much, but I know some of you are. And, and you'll get on there and you'll see all these different tests and exams that you can take, a personality test or see what mood color you've got or, or whatever these things are. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what spe specifically what they are other than that they want to get your information so they can hack your accounts, what they want to do. But all these tests that, they, that you can do and go through, and so they kind of water down this idea of, of truly reflecting on who you are, truly reflecting on your life, reflecting on how you live your life for the Lord and whether or not you are truly following after the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yet we see Scripture again and again calling us to self-examination. And so I want to look to this today of what it means to truly examine ourselves. Because I want you to know that it is more than just a mental exercise of seeing whether or not you think you're mostly good or mostly bad. It's more than a mental exercise to say, you know what, there was that time where I, I had that feeling and I'm relying on that as salvation. The examination that we are called to in Scripture carries with it a weight that is far more significant than just some mental exercise. And we're going to see that here as, as we begin to look here in the book of Philippians. 
This is Paul once again writing to the church at Philippi and here early on, actually, uh, kind of as he's moving through his introduction, we're just going to read a three-verse prayer that Paul has for the Philippian church. Read with me beginning at verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Paul is exhorting the, the church at Philippi, and he's saying, these are the things that I pray for you. Now, when you see this example in Scripture where you see an apostle or you see uh, someone who has some authority or, or some position of, uh, of reverence and they're having a prayer for others, it is careful for us to note the, the reasons and the, the things that they are praying for. What Paul is praying for the Philippians are the things that the Philippians should be praying for themselves. That's the example that Paul is providing to them. These are the things that I pray for you, and so these are the characteristics that you should seek after for yourself. Look what he says, that your love may abound. Paul is saying uh, his desire, his prayer for the people of Philippi is that they would be a loving people. That should be the prayer that we have for ourselves, that we are a loving people. That it may abound yet more and more. How? In knowledge... And in all judgment, that our love is evident how? In our knowledge, our understanding of Scripture, and our knowledge and understanding of the Lord, and our ability to judge according to that. Not our judgment according to our ideas, but our judgment according to the knowledge of the truth. That we judge all things. This isn't a, a, I'm judging somebody else. I'm saying we're judging everything whether it is good or whether it is bad, not according to our opinion of it, but according to the knowledge of the truth. (laughs) Let me say something today that the world seems not to believe in anymore. I believe in absolute truth. I believe in absolute truth, absolutely. And I believe that our single most source of absolute truth is the Scriptures. It is the God-inspired Bible from which we can look to absolute truth. It is settled matter. There are some that say, well, you know, there are these different interpretations and these different interpretations, so who's right? I want you to know that the Scriptures have stood all this time. Listen, if there was going to be some way to disprove the Scriptures, it would have already happened. I love the poem that my brother Reynolds shared one year down at Old Muni was a poem that was found in a bathroom, actually, of a public restroom. But he had, had remem- or memorized the poem, and he was sharing it with us. And the idea was that there was a blacksmith, and there was a man who was walking through a town, and he walked up to the blacksmith's, uh, blacksmith's store, his, his workshop, and he saw the blacksmith in there, and he was just hammering away at a piece of metal with a hammer up against an anvil. And the man stood there, and he watched for a while, and he struck up a conversation with the blacksmith. And he said, surely, seeing how much force you are hammering against that piece of metal, you must go through a lot of equipment. And the blacksmith answered, and he said, I go through a lot of hammers, but I have only one anvil. The comparison then is made to the Scriptures. People have beat it and hit against it again and again and again. The hammers have broken, but the anvil, it stands. We have absolute truth in the Scriptures. And so this is how we can discern and judge rightly 
all the matters of life. Do you believe that? You, you need to decide for yourself if you believe that. I believe that. But I'm not here to try to get you to believe like I do. I, I want you for yourself to consider whether or not you believe that Scripture is God-inspired, that it's inerrant, without error, and that it is sufficient for our needs. I believe that it is. And we could talk more about that. That's not the purpose of the message today. But I do want to get into verse 10 because it carries this idea of judgment into verse 10. He says that you may approve things that are excellent. This is where we want to spend some time at here this morning. Paul is telling them and encouraging them in this prayer that they would approve all the things that matter the most. That through this judgment, they would be able to discern in life all the things that matter, all the things that are excellent, against all the things that don't. All those things that are evil, all those things that are just waste of time, that they could rightly discern the difference. This is what it means to examine ourselves. Is that we are able to rightly discern, according to the evidence, the things that are excellent and the things that are not. Now, this idea of, of approving, this idea of, of examining, if we were to, to do an in-depth uh, kind of review of, of, the, of the Greek that's behind these words, what we begin to see is that there are all sorts of examples in the Scriptures, in the New Testament Scriptures, of how this has been applied. In fact, one of them is found in the book of, book of Luke. I believe it's over in the 12th chapter. It might be the 5th chapter. Now I'm getting myself backwards here. Uh, I told you I'm preaching outside my comfort zone this morning. <laughs> but we look over in the book of Luke, we see the example where Jesus, he's teaching to a multitude. And it says that the, there was a multitude that was innumerable, that it came around Jesus and his disciples. And so we see that it's kind of this, this, this paradigm where Jesus is spending some of his time and he's teaching the disciples. And then at times he'll kind of back up from teaching his disciples and he'll teach the multitudes that are innumerable. Well, during this, this discourse that he's having with his disciples and with this innumerable multitude, we see that Jesus turns his attention to the people. He turns his attention to this innumerable multitude. And the challenge, the, the question that he's addressing is whether or not, or what is it that they're looking for to believe whether or not this truly be the Christ. And Jesus says this. He says, you can look to the western sky, and you can see a cloud, and you can expect that it's going to rain. He says, or you can feel the wind blow from the south, and you can expect that there's going to be warmer weather. And he says, how is it that you can discern the skies and the earth based upon the, the uh, cloud in the sky, or based upon the wind that you feel, but you can't discern this current time? The point that he's making is that we are, are equipped to discern things. We have the ability and there are things that we rightly will judge and examine and say, we see this. And as a result of that, we can reach a conclusion about it. You know, right now, the, the wind today is supposed to be pretty windy. And it's going to be a southern wind. Did you know the high tomorrow is 61? I don't know if the Lord aligned all the weather just for this sermon. I'm going to assume that he did. I'm going to start preaching about it being 85 pretty soon. <laughs> but the purpose that we see is that, that these things are true and they're, they're, they're timeless. And so Jesus is taking this discernment that, the, that just people have naturally and he's saying you can discern that. But then he makes this point. He says, but how is it then that you cannot discern the times? And he goes on and he says, and, and I'm just going to translate it in my own version here. But he makes the point that it's a lot easier to judge others or to judge things that are not necessarily so consequential 
than it is to judge ourselves. I find it interesting that if you were to read on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you're actually going to see that Paul instructs us to judge ourselves. Meanwhile, in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, we are told, judge not lest you be judged. We see a dichotomy between what Jesus tells us, hey, don't judge others until you first remove that moat out of your own eye. Yet Paul tells us to judge ourselves. So how can we then truly judge ourselves? How can we truly examine ourselves? Some of you right now, you would say, well, you know what? Overall, compared to that guy over there, I'm doing pretty good. You know what Paul said about that and also to the Corinthians? He said to compare ourselves by ourselves is unwise. Our standard is not one another. Listen, if your standard was me, y'all would be doing exceedingly well. But our standard is not one another. Our standard is Jesus Christ. And we compare ourselves to Him. What you will find is the same thing that I will find that we are lacking considering His righteousness and compared to His righteousness. So when we examine ourselves, we have to get it all out on the table. You see, this is why this can't just be some mental exercise where you haphazardly go through and you say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm mostly doing okay. I don't have any heinous sin or, or anything that, that you know, would be a public shame, so I must be doing okay. Instead, this matter of self-reflection, this matter of self-examination should be one that leads us to repentance. Because what we do is we get all the evidence on the table. And this is where it ultimately comes down to examination can only take place when we are willing to acknowledge the evidence. And whether or not you want to see it, or whether or not, not you want to acknowledge it, the evidence stands for itself. As to whether or not we are truly living for the Lord as we are called to, or, or even for that matter, whether or not you're truly saved. Isn't that what Jesus taught he said, you will know them by their fruits. You will know whether or not there's, this is, is one who is teaching false doctrine by the evidence of the fruit. Does a fig tree bear, bear bad fruit? Or does it bear figs? Does a thorn bush bear figs? Or does it bear thorns? I can go out here and I can investigate whether or not Bobby's trees over here are apple trees or not. How? Not because of my knowledge of bark, but because of the fruit. That they produce. Some of you laugh like you all are bark experts. We're not called to be bark experts, but we are called to be judges of fruit. And the first fruit that you should judge, the first fruit that you should inspect is your own. It is to examine yourself. It is to get the evidence on the table and then to address the matter as to whether or not you truly be who it is that you claim to be. Because right now, if you were to go through, I was actually just reading these statistics the other day about the statistics of, of those that profess Christianity in the United States today, and it's lower than it has been, but it's still way over half the country that, that believes themselves to be a Christian. And so if you were to go to, to just some random person, and you were to say, are you a Christian? They would look you in the eye and most likely tell you, yes, they are. But the question is, does the fruit support the claim? Does the evidence support who you're claiming to be? You claim to be saved, and God bless you. That's wonderful. To God be the glory for your salvation. But does the fruit match your profession? You will know them by the fruits. 
you will be able to approve the things that are excellent. In fact, that example that I gave over there in the book of Luke, Jesus went on and he gave an example of a magistrate. And he said, if you had an adversary, that someone that you had an issue with that you need to get settled in court, he said, you'd be careful about how you went about that, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to go to court if all the evidence was against you. You don't want to be settling up, wouldn't you? Jesus gives this example. He said, yeah, you'd be saying, listen, I want to get these things taken care of. I want to get it settled up before the judge would look at you and you would not have any relief until you paid every last mite. That's the King James word. Until you paid every last cent that was owed. When the evidence is against you, my brothers and my sisters, we do well to repent as that examination reveals to us where we stand before the Lord. It's a matter of the evidence. I could go through and we could look at evidence together. But I don't think we need to do that. Your evidence, my evidence, it stands against us and us only. You can't take the evidence of me and try to apply it to yourself. And I can't take your evidence and try to apply it to my account. It is the evidence between you and the Lord alone. Matthew Henry said this concerning this passage. He said, when it comes down to the matter concerning how we would would relate in this examination to the Lord, he said the question is whether or not we are agreeing with the covenant, with the new covenant promise that Christ has given us, or whether we are continuing to serve after a covenant with sin. He said the matter as it comes to examining ourselves is does God have his place at the forefront of our minds where everything that we strive for is for his glory and according to his purpose and according to his command or instead does God occupy some backspace in our mind where he takes a backseat to everything else in life that we put before him. Is your life mixed up with sin or instead are you living and striving for the glory of of the Lord. You can answer that question. You can say, well, of course, I'm trying for the glory of the Lord. Does the evidence support your claim? You stand before an almighty judge. He knows everything. He knows your deepest and innermost thoughts. He knows the things you do when no one else is looking. He knows the deepest, darkest, darkest secrets that you've never shared with anyone else. So be careful when you answer the question, does the evidence support your claim? It's not the evidence that I see. It's the evidence that God sees. So what do you do then? What do we do then as a result of this examination? Let's continue to look here at these verses. He says that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. He is speaking to the, to the nature of their faith that it would be sincere and genuine and that it would stand blameless until the day of Christ. I ask you, if we just went through this exercise, if we know that none is good, no, not one, if we know, as Isaiah teaches us, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, how can we say that any of us is blameless? The answer is not that we are somehow able to just hide these things or justify them for ourselves. But we can stand blameless before the Lord through repentance, through a continual repenting on our face before the Lord. 
Where we seek after Him. We say, God, I know that my sins are always in front of me. And I know that they're always in front of you. And I look at them and I'm made like Paul did where I cry out, oh, wretched man that I am. Yet I see these sins that are in front of me and I struggle with them and I battle against them all the day long. But oh God, please deliver me from them. Help me to turn away from them. To put them behind me. To truly repent. Not just to say in some superficial way that I'm not going to deal with these things anymore. But that you are turning away from them and seeking solely after the righteousness of the Lord. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not saying sorry. I want to make sure that's clear. Repentance is not an apology that you make before the Lord and then you go out and you do the same thing again. That's no apology at all in the first place. That's certainly not what repentance is. Repentance is to shun the wicked deeds of the carnal nature of man. And to say, God, I despise those things. And you are, are turning away from them. The idea of repentance carries this idea of turning away. And you're turning and looking instead to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to get to something in a second. It says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. There we see it, don't we? being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Again, this is the prayer that Paul has for the Philippian church. He says that we'd be approving, that we'd be discerners of the things that are excellent, of the things that matter the most, that we'd be genuine and sincere and blameless, and that the evidence would be filled with the fruits. The fruits of what? The fruits of righteousness. We can go over and we can read about the fruits of the Spirit. You can read about those in the book of Galatians. We can go and we can look after what righteousness entails. We can go and look after the manner of life that Jesus had, how there was no vile thought or deed that He ever did. We can look through all of these examples of what righteousness is. And so we can look to the evidence of, of the fruits of righteousness. And they are weighed in the balance against ours. You ever had that exercise? Remember when you were a kid? You'd have some scale in school and you'd put so much many crowns in this side and so many pencils on this side and try to get them to weigh in the balance. So it is with us. Is your righteousness, let me rephrase that, is your pursuit of righteousness bearing the fruit that we would expect in the life of a believer? And Jesus one time, He was traveling on the Sabbath and He was hungry. He came up to a fig tree. He was expecting there to be figs. There wasn't any figs. You know what Jesus said to that tree? He cursed it. The tree withered up and it died. Why? It was a fig tree. It didn't have any figs. Does your life provide the evidence of righteousness? Not yours but the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. As you would examine yourself today, what conclusion are you made to reach? What is the the final judgment that you are made to consider? Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praises of God. I want to close by bringing to your consideration this. 
When we examine ourselves, we are putting ourselves in the balance. We lay all the evidence on the table. We are beginning to try to discern, just as, as Jesus was giving that example to the multitudes about how they could discern the, the skies and the face of the earth and all these things based upon the evidence that was supporting them. And he was ultimately trying to tell them, look at the evidence of who I am and the miracles that I do and the fulfillment of the prophecies that he's exactly who he said he was. As we consider that same exercise of discernment and the evidence is put before us, I want you to consider this. When the evidence that is put before you is laid out on the table, when you see and you measure yourself against the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the heart of the believer will be made once again to rejoice in seeing the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. When your sins are put out against you and you see all that Jesus overcame on your behalf when He hung on the tree at Calvary, listen to me, when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, when He was scourged, when He was tried in that mock trial by Pontius Pilate, when all that transpired there on that cross at Calvary, when it was done, I want you to know that what Jesus did is He paid the price for your sins. He bore the weight of your transgressions. Not just transgressions past, not just sins past, but sins future. Jesus looked and He knew all the things that you would ever do that would transgress the righteousness and holiness of God. And He paid your debt in full there on the cross. Jesus died for a debt that He did not owe. And the debt that He died for is yours. And so when we see our evidence of sin, what we should be made to do is to look to the cross of Christ and to rejoice in seeing that Jesus, this perfect Son, has died for our sins. But it gets better from there. He died that He might experience the punishment of death that is the consequence of sin. Do you know that? Do you know why people die? It's a direct consequence of sin. Isn't that what God told Adam and Eve in the garden? The day that you eat of that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. It is transgression that results in death. I believe it was Paul who said that the wages of sin is death. The reward of sin is that we die. So Jesus tasted death once for every man. He died for our sins. And He was buried. He was truly dead and truly buried. Buried in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And He was buried there. But He didn't stay. Not only did Jesus bear the weight of our sins, not only did He pay our sin debt there on the cross, not only did He taste of the punishment of sin, which is death, but then He defeated it. Isn't that wonderful? He defeated the consequence of sin. He overcame death by the power of the resurrection. And He defeated it. And He walked out of that tomb. I forget who it was that said it. But I can just about picture Jesus walking out of that tomb, shaking the keys of death held in the grave as He emerged from it victorious, having conquered death. You see, not only did Jesus conquer sin when He died on the cross, 
But he conquered the punishment of sin, the reward of sin, when he resurrected from the grave. And because of that, not only can I be saved, but I have the promise and assurance of heaven because of what Jesus did. God looks at me and he sees the righteousness of his son that has been imputed to my account. And though it is that my sins are always before me and my sins are always before God, God looks at me and he sees the righteousness of his son. And he treats me as his righteous child. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> oh, praise God for the death and burial and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, who paid a debt that he did not owe and suffered a death that he never deserved to suffer through, but he was resurrected by his power <laughs> that we today can walk in this newness of life. We can have fellowship with God the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. So as you weigh the evidence, as you examine yourself, if you're like me, you'll examine yourself and you're not going to be too proud of what you see. When your eyes are made to be cast down because of what you see, look to the cross. Look to Jesus Christ. When you gather around the table here after a while, we'll be gathering to remember the death of Jesus as He paid the debt that He did not owe, that I could receive a life that I do not deserve. And so we remember Him. We remember the death that He died for our sins. And so as we observe that blessed ordinance, let us be careful to examine ourselves. But let our examination not just be here today alone, but let us continually examine ourselves, seeking that we might continuously desire after those things, as Paul put it to the Philippians, that are more excellent. Those things that matter the most. I don't know how you go through your life, but if you're like me, day to day I'm pretty busy. I have things that i got to figure out what I'm going to do from one day to the next. And normally how I ultimately have to prioritize my day is by what things matter the most. I think Paul challenges us in his prayer for the Philippian church that we'd be looking for those things <clears throat> that matter the most. Those weighty things of the Lord. And those things that <clears throat> don't have a temporary excellency, but an eternal excellency. Do you know why I believe church is so important? I, I, let, me, let me just close by this editorial comment here. You know why I believe church is so important? The gathering, the assembling of the saints together like this. You know why I believe it's so important? The things that take place here, the things that take place amongst the assembled saints of God are the things that have an eternal impact. Listen, later on today, you might go home and, and, and watch TV or do whatever it is you might do, and those things have just a temporary impact. The things that happen when God's people assemble themselves together have an impact on eternity. They are the things that matter the most. That's why we should prioritize these things. That's, these things are the things that are more excellent. Let me close with this. I just keep having thoughts in my mind. I'll close with this. At the conclusion, in the, in the next chapter, I mentioned the, first, the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul, he's beginning to set up all this idea about gifts. 
And he gets to the conclusion of the 12th chapter. He says, but still I show you a more excellent way. He's saying, I'm going to show you the things that matter most. And then he goes into the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Who can tell me what the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is all about? Love. He's I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then he goes into a deep exploration of love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. I praise God today that though I examine myself and I'm not always thrilled with what I see, I look to the cross and I see one who loved me so much that he died for my sins. To him may all glory and honor ever be. I thank you for listening to me.